Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this month's Data Bytes, getting things done with data in government, supported this month by ADR UK. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to welcome you all this evening. Let's start in the traditional Data Bytes way. Hands up if you've been to Data Bytes before. Welcome back. And hands up if this is your first Data Bytes. Welcome. Tonight, our 22nd event is a back to school special of sorts, with all our presenters speaking about data on children and young people. The start of a new Data Bytes term brings all the excitement, anticipation and promise of a fresh start and none of the dread of having forgotten your PE kit. May tonight's event bring you as much joy as a cabinet minister clubbing in Aberdeen. Let's start as ever with some housekeeping. We are on the record and are being live streamed, obviously. If you'd like to get involved on social media, you can use hashtag IFGDataBytes and follow us on Twitter at IFGEvents. And if you'd like to put questions to our speakers, you can do so using the Slido page you're almost certainly watching this on already. If you're not, follow the on-screen instructions. You may well be wondering why you're here this evening. Well, DataBytes is designed to bring the various different data communities around government together, to show leaders, including those who don't think of themselves as data people, the benefits of better data, and to put some great work on the record for everyone to learn from. That's the why, now the how. You're going to be treated to four presentations on different data projects tonight. Each of those presentations will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a data byte. After their presentation, each speaker will face eight minutes of questions. Yes, eight minutes. Make sure you get those questions in via Slido. And then we move on to the next speaker. So four presentations, each lasting eight minutes and each followed by eight minutes of questions. As you've heard, tonight is our 22nd event. You can watch the other 21 on the IFG website. Now, lots of historic things have happened since we last met. Enough to populate a cover of Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. Don't worry, I'm not going to deliver on Alice's promise slash threat just yet. TB or not TB, that was the question of the Harma Lama Ding Dong. England did brilliantly, brilliantly at the Euros. Team GB had another brilliant Olympics and another brilliant Paralympics. The news from Afghanistan was considerably less positive with the Taliban seizing power. So too was the news from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that fire now incontrovertibly started by us. On the data front, the UK will soon have a new information commissioner as Elizabeth Denham gives way to John Edwards, whose Twitter bio suggests he may fit in quite well here at Databytes. And the government finally said more about its plans to consult on the future of GDPR, including Digital Secretary Oliver Dowden monstering cookies. I suspect we'll hear something tonight about the importance of sharing and linking data in a secure, trustworthy and transparent way, something NHS Digital was accused of not doing with their GPDPR plans to use more data from our medical records. This chart shows you how many people had opted out of their data being used for certain things before media coverage became widespread. And this is what it looks like afterwards, nearly doubling to 3.2 million people or 5% of the population. A valuable reminder of the importance of talking to the public about these issues. The IFGs also had a busy summer. Last week, we published a report by Lee Kane, former director of comms at Downing Street on reforming the government communications service. There's lots of interesting stuff in there, including this on data visualisation, something we take very seriously here at the IFG. In fact, tomorrow sees the publication of our latest parliamentary monitor. Here's a really interesting chart from it. Redacted not in homage to government freedom of information responses, but because it's still embargoed. So make sure you keep an eye out for that tomorrow. I've also had a busy summer in between bouts of rocking back and forth in the corner, waiting for data bytes to start back up again. 
A long-standing challenge around data and government has been to simply understand who's responsible for what and who's doing what, which we tried to map a few years ago. That's just the first page. There's more, much more. This summer, I've been working with the Open Data Institute to take that further. We're crowdsourcing a document of government organisations responsible for data and data-related initiatives. If you'd like to contribute, and we'd love you to, you can visit bit.ly slash ODI data map. Now, the document is already quite long, so I was trying to think of a way to summarise it. And, well, it's been seven months since anybody sang at Databytes, so... There's GDSDC, MS, and HMT, and GBS, UKSA, and OSR, and not forgetting ONS, and CDI, and OAI, and AI, and I, and ICO, and indexing DDO, CDIO, EIEIO, DHSC, and NEG, and UPSA, and the JBC, NHSX, and HSD, legal EHSC, IC, base 10DS, 10DU, and the forthcoming GOTT. DSATNA hubs equality and quality. There's GSS and GES and GSRGORS and functions digital finance grants management analysis. NICUKRI and if you've got the wherewithal, the geo 6 geo place and Japanese geospatial. It seemed like such a good idea at the time. This is based on 90 pages worth of organisations and projects. I do hope you're sitting comfortably. Professions, yes, and functions, but don't waste the opportunity to make a board advisory group of government community on architecture, APIs, and many other facets, like open standards, attitudes, and state and knowledge assets. The GDS has regone plans and registers canonical, and CDDO, DSA for issues taxonomical, the CMS has NDS and ONS as IDB. And everyone is doing work on bloody digital ID. D.K.I.M.C.D.D.B.D.M.U.D.S.C. C.S.S. Go Science didn't fit anywhere else you see. This alphabet suit gives a sense of all the bodies coping with all the many plans for data big and smart and open. I hope you've liked this very serious data-led endeavour, which thanks to changing policy will need updates forever. If there are any senior civil servants watching and you're keen to get on top of all that, you'll be the very model of the modern director general. Turning to this evening, we have four fantastic speakers for you. First, we'll hear from Ruth Gilbert of University College London and the NIHR Children and Families Policy Research Unit about the potential for the eChild database to inform policy. Next up will be Gary Connell, Head of Data Ownership and Data Sharing at the Department for Education on LEO. LEO being Longitudinal Education Outcomes Data, we haven't taken an astrological turn. Then we'll hear from Morag Trainer, Professor of Child and Family Inequalities at Harriet Watt University on linking data to better understand children's lives and outcomes. And last but not least, we'll hear from Robert French of Cardiff University on children and young people with type 1 diabetes, data linkage beyond health. Assuming I've not quit for a lucrative musical comedy career or been sacked, in the meantime, Databytes will be back on Wednesday 6th of October and then Wednesdays 3rd of November and 1st of December. We're only able to continue Databytes thanks to the generous support of our partners. So we're very grateful to ADR UK, Administrative Data Research UK, for supporting tonight's event. This is the record fourth Databytes they've supported. If you might be interested in sponsoring an event and beating their record, you can email my colleague Pratesh. And if you're doing something interesting with data in government and would like to speak or know someone who should, drop me a line. 
As ever, we'll be having some virtual drinks after the event. Please do join us. We'll put these details up again later, but link is bit.ly slash db22drinks, password ifgdb22, all case sensitive. That's my introduction out of the way. So let's kick off with our first speaker, Ruth Gilbert. Ruth, over to you. And I think you're still on mute, Ruth. Yes, there we are. Hello. Hi. Well, what a difficult introduction to follow. Um, so as, as we learn to live with COVID and its consequences, one example of an important and urgent area for policy is inequalities in children's health and in the conditions in which they grow and develop. These inequalities are important for children, but also to the whole of society, as they have lifelong impacts through adulthood on adult health and capability. So the, on this slide, I show three reports in the last 18 months that try to address these childhood inequalities. Recommendations include giving children the best start in life, maximizing their capabilities and intervening early to prevent or mitigate the harms of health and social inequalities. All three recommend early interventions from different agencies across healthcare, education and social care to support parents and children. But working out what services children and families uh, already receive and how this might change with early intervention needs joined up data. And this data needs to be longitudinal to understand what services are received when across childhood and to examine whether early intervention might influence later health and education outcomes. So joining up data is the purpose of the eChild database, which stands for Education and Child Health Insights from Linked Data. The aim is to provide a resource for policy based on evidence of how health, education and social care services support groups of children or fail to support them across England. The eChild database has been created by a partnership between University College London, NHS Digital, DfE and ONS funded by ADR UK. I think they were all in the song. eChild links hospital data with with um, which includes uh, data from admissions, outpatients and accident and emergency departments with data from the National Pupil Database. So this includes data from schools such as attainment tests and also uh, special educational needs and social care. These data have been linked about 14.7 million children now and the data are held in the ONS SRS. These data are de-identified, so no names or postcodes or date of, dates of birth. And in fact, attempts to re-identify a child would be a data breach. But to help you imagine eChild, I am going to show you a fictitious trajectory of one child uh, tonight. So here is a girl, whoops, here is a girl born in the NHS. We can follow her from her birth admission to an early admission for wheeziness and later admissions for injury and then in adolescence for self-harm. She gives birth to her first child, aged 19. When we add in school data, 
we see that she receives additional special educational needs support relatively late on in primary school. By secondary school, she's frequently absent and does badly in her GCSEs age 16. Adding in social care, we see that she has a late referral to social care in primary school and then she becomes looked after in her first year at secondary school. Of course, each child can never be used to pinpoint individual children in this way, but it can be used to answer questions about groups of children like this. So in this example, a key question is whether earlier provision of special educational needs support or earlier support from social care could have led to different outcomes. So we could try to answer the first question by comparing outcomes of children in different local authorities or different schools where SEND support may routinely be offered earlier or later and then use statistical techniques to ensure comparability of other characteristics such as children's health and socioeconomic factors. So the eChild the eChild partnership has worked on three broad areas to build the eChild database. Building public trust, establishing and validating linkage and exemplar studies, and the governance to enable reuse by researchers and government analysts more widely. The academic team at UCL has led on building public trust. Since early on in the project, we've repeatedly consulted with groups of parents at Great Ormond Street and the National Children's Bureau and so on. And we regularly meet these groups throughout the project. We've worked with over 100 uh, young people and parents so far. And then in April of this year, the whole partnership held a stakeholder meeting with 14 charities and organisations. And this report highlights the findings. So in general, there was strong support for using eChild as long as safeguards ensure use for public benefit and keep the data secure. Work on linkage has brought together methodologists at UCL with technical expertise at NHS Digital. And we've had to iteratively develop and evaluate uh, the, the linkage algorithm to get it as, as, as good as possible. So in this, in this slide, we show the proportion of children in the education data who linked to a hospital record increased over time. So for those born in 2004 or 5, 99% linked to at least one hospital record. But what we also found was those captured at later steps in the algorithm or not linked at all were disproportionately non-white or poorer although this, this bias diminished in later years as data quality improved. So this shows the value of a multi-stage linkage algorithm, and it shows us that in some situations where these factors are really important, statistical adjustment may be needed to deal with residual bias due to unlinked children. Lastly, and most importantly, is establishing the governance arrangements for wider use of eChild. This has taken time, but it's anticipated that applications to use eChild can be submitted by next spring. The Department for Education and Gary Connell's team, who's going to be following me in a moment, will be in major users of eChild and they'll be using it for planning and monitoring their services. 
but we expect users also from other parts of government and across the research community for a wide range of purposes. But the test all of these will have to meet is that they're primarily for public benefit and will benefit healthcare and education. So just to finish, uh, what are the lessons for how to get things done with data for government? I think three points here, making the same data available across government and academia is good for building public trust. There's often strong support for academic research, often involvement of charities and diverse data users create diverse opportunities to involve the public, widen understanding of how it's used and thereby increase transparency and trust. Secondly, the academic partnership with government brings complementary expertise and capacity, sharing of insights, uh, methods and tools, and is therefore more productive and innovative. And lastly, it's never job done. Opportunities for enhancing eChild will constantly evolve as new data sets and technical advances emerge, and that in building those into the eChild data set will benefit from a partnership approach. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Ruth. A few acronyms in there I didn't manage to fit into the introduction. Um, thanks for giving us off to such a great start. And just a reminder to everyone, lots to dig into there. Please do submit your questions via Slido. Um, I'm going to kick off with a, with a question, Ruth. You talked twice a lot about the sort of public trust, the public engagement, the different partnerships um, between sort of academia, government, uh, public, other organisations. How do you how do you sort of approach building those relationships on an ongoing dynamic basis? Uh, so in, in, in different ways, often it's working with, with, with small groups and trying to make sure that those reflect diverse opinions. So, for instance, uh, this Saturday, I'll be working with a group of, of, of young people, all of whom will have a disability and, and through to, to other groups from schools and from, from healthcare. That's one way. Um, raising awareness and doing things like a stakeholder event is another way. And I think having a, a good, a good um, website and that encourages dialogue. I think it's really important to be responsive to the audience and, of course, to, to be talking to charities and, and pressure groups that have concerns. Fantastic. Thank you. And in fact, Mary Alice Doyle um, has asked, could you say a bit more about your consultation process? Did you set up a panel with a fixed group? Was it more one-on-one -on -one consultation meetings? Mostly it's been with groups and it's really variable. And we're really helped here, Mary, by working with facilitators at Great Ormond Street and the National Children's Bureau and the Council for Disabled Children who are, are very tuned into their groups. And so, we'll, you know, will work with us before we have a session so that we, we um, you know, we explain things very clearly. We understand uh, sort of words that might be uh, that might be seen uh, as, as sort of trigger points for the group. So it's 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 a teamwork with people that have experience in consulting uh, young people and parents. Fantastic, thank you. We've got a question from Anonymous. He says, "Thank you for not singing. Uh, thank you for that, Anonymous, and not even being brave enough to give your real name." And um, they ask, "Is each child a census of every child in England, or a sample, and at what level? And if so, why was that level chosen?" Um, and they also ask, um, "DfE allows journalists access to the National Pupil Database. Would you reject such access?" 
Right, so um, I think on my second slide or third slide, it, it said all children in England. So that's one of the key points about this is we're able to look across uh, all services in every local authority um, for children born from the mid 90s onwards. So it's, it's not a sample, it's all children. Um, so that will obviously grow as, as time goes on. Uh, in terms of what the uh, who will be able to access the data, then it, it has to meet that test that I mentioned at the end, which is, is the use for public benefit and will it benefit healthcare and education? So those are the tests um, and all, who exactly will be administering this? Of course, the data is owned by NHS Digital and the Department for Education, but it may well be administered by the Office for National Statistics, so they may be uh, dealing with those applications. Excellent. Thanks, Ruth. Um, we've got another question from another anonymous uh, who says, great presentation, Ruth. Uh, again, back on the, the sort of engagement point, can you say a bit more about how your engagement with children, families and charities has informed the research being done using the eChild database? Thank you. That's that's a really good question. So, um, so, so it tells us what's, I mean, right from the start, one of the, the 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 things that was fed back to us was, you know, we we started discussing uh, what it meant to have de-identified data. How would you feel if if people could re-identify you? So that was clearly a no-go area, and particularly a no-go area in terms of uh, education or schools being able to see in to 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 see your health data. So people that knew you in schools seeing your health data was was a no-go area even though some of sometimes information about your health may well be helpful for the school so that was very clear early on that's one way um uh, that 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 it helped another way that it helps is is for instance there's many outcomes we can be looking at in schools uh, but one of the things that that has been very emotional and clearly important to young people and their parents is the ability to participate in school. And that means absences are a really important thing when you're looking at how children's health affects their schooling. And great sense of unfairness, actually, when um, pupils feel penalised or unfairly treated when they might have uh, might be unwell but not have a proper diagnosis to kind of justify tick the box that they can be absent from school so so that clearly raises lots of emotions and it's very common Fantastic, thank you. Um, we've got a few questions which I'll wrap together asking about whether particular um, data is included. So um, Anonymous asks, does the database include um, early years education and two-year-old review data? Um, we've got somebody else asking, does it include data from further education colleges? And um, does the data include information on types of social care placements of looked after children? So are, are any of those sort of included? In, okay, in so early years, yes, if it's in the public sector, um, not the two-year-old, um, not the not the two-and-a-half-year-old check, not the further education, so not the individual learner record, and I think that's a really important area that we should look at in enhancement, and I've run out as the other one. What's the other one? Uh, so we had placements for looked after children. We've oh, yes. had, yeah. Yeah, so so it, it includes the children's social care records, so so that the longitudinal records of of placements 
um, each episode of care and the type of placement, yes, that's there, and the child in need data. So contacts, referrals and assessments and interventions from social care. Brilliant, thank you. We've got just about a minute and a half left and some brilliant questions that I'm not going to get around to. Um, one that I can is from Heather Neat. Do you have enough data sharing legislation to capture the full range of data you need? Uh, that has been, so working through aligning these legal pathways from Department for Education and NHS Digital has been a struggle and has taken time, but it has been done. And for these data that I've spoken about today, we've achieved it for, for, for um, the uses for UCL at the moment to undertake these exemplar studies, evaluate the linkage and so on. And we're very confident that we will achieve it for unspecified wider uses for research um, by next spring. So the answer is yes. Brilliant. And a great question to finish on from Simon Dennis at SAS UK. Uh, the use of diverse stakeholders has clearly been effective. The ability to reuse within govern governed bounds is a big benefit. So how do we make this more prevalent across evidential data sets for policy? Ah, so so tricky. I mean, it has. To be honest, I think uh, it it takes it take it's taken years, and one of the important advantages when we went to HDR UK for funding for this is that we'd already developed a feasibility project of that I showed you the linkage evaluation on a four one year cohorts, and that meant we had a precedent of doing the technical linkage as well as the the governance uh, procedures. So I think that workup. Um, was really important, but it was it was years of 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 our time. Brilliant. And sadly, we've only got eight minutes of time. Uh, so apologies to people whose questions I wasn't able to put to Ruth. But Ruth, that was fascinating. Thank you for getting the evening off to a wonderful start. Thank you. Thank you. And seamlessly, we flow into the next presentation, which is from Gary Gary Connell at Department for Education. Over to you, Gary. Thank you, Gavin, and thank you for everyone for the opportunity to speak to you tonight. I won't bore you too much about talking about myself, but just to quickly introduce myself. I'm Gary Connell, and I'm the Head of Data Ownership and Data Sharing within the Data Director of the Department for Education. So in terms of what I'm going to chat to you about tonight, the idea is just to give you a very brief overview of data sharing within DFE and to highlight some of the work that we've been doing to widen access to the longitudinal educational outcomes of the LEO data set. You'll notice I'll probably say LEO quite a lot because particularly under pressure, I always struggle to say longitudinal, which is not great for a government analyst as well. But okay, so in terms of data sharing within DFE, and for some of the reasons that Ruth has um, mentioned in her earlier slide, certainly data sharing within DFE is well established and where it's lawful, secure and ethical to do so, We've been sharing de-identified or pseudo-anonymised record-level data in the public interest since the establishment of the National People Database almost 20 years ago. So I don't think um, we can sort of overestimate sort of the importance of the, um, DFE and in fact is all ensuring that all uses of our data are lawful and secure. But where that can be achieved, 
DfE remain fully committed to working with partners both, ac both across government and also the wider research community to do all we can to improve the evidence base surrounding what works in education and children's services. So this includes, amongst many other things that were sort of done, the establishment in autumn 2018 of the Office for National Statistics Secure Research Service, or the SRS, as our default route for sh um, safely sharing access to de-identified extracts of DfE data. So, in terms of what is the Longitudinal Educational Outcomes Dataset, or LEO, LEO is essentially a cross-department LinkedIn dataset which links benefits, employment and earnings data from the Department from Work, Work and Pensions and HMRC with education data from DfE and the devolved administrations. This linking has created a highly valuable and actually well sought after de-identified personal level administrative data set which allows us to chart the progression and outcomes of learners and the educational routes that they follow into the labour market. So the LEO dataset allows us to do many things in the public interest, including but not limited to providing richer information to enable students and parents to perhaps make more informed education and career choices, as well as obviously providing a stronger and robust evidence base to support things like government decision making, policy development and policy evaluation. So there's, there's a lot of people a lot smarter than me within DfE and certainly also on this call who would be able to talk through some of the LEO analysis which has been done to date for a lot longer than the eight minutes I have available tonight. So sort of what I'm attempting to do here is just sort of to give a few slides to give some examples of the art of the possible when considering LEO data. So the link on this slide takes you to the DfE's Explore Education Statistics Service, where through our statistical dissemination platform, we publish open data to support all of our official and national statistic releases to give users access to more to more information and in a format sort of readily suited to secondary analysis. It's probably useful just to caveat as well that this um, the Explore Education Statistics Service and the dissemination platform as only sort of aggregated data. It's, it's effectively it's the data that, that we publish, but you are able to build your own sort of breakdowns or your own sort of tables from that. So as a couple of examples of what's possible from Leo, the table on the left here shows um, earnings of graduates by ethnicity one, three, five and ten years after graduation. And the table on right, the, sorry, the table on the right, which is a per personal favourite of mine, shows the earnings of graduates by subjects studied five years after the graduation. So, for example, this graph on the right, depending on your motivation, could be useful for prospective students when considering their education and career choices. Obviously, for example, sort of if you wish to. Um, You'll, you'll sort of see, um, not, maybe not unsurprisingly, sort of um, medicine and dentistry, which um, is the entry sort of in the bottom, the, the the very bottom of that table. That's that's where you can see the the median earnings for that. I thought quite higher than perhaps some of the um, the, the other sort of um, subjects studied. Although obviously as well, that that's actually one of the limitations of of Leo as well. It should always be remembered that. Um, there's many more outcomes than sort of salaries and sort of medium salaries, but I think it's just, it's it's useful for illustrative purposes. I think the the thing that's also interesting in this chart is it also illustrates some of the disparities in median earnings across gender. 
So um, it'll probably be difficult to see sort of on screen, but the the little blue circle sort of in each of those um, sort of blue rectangles that that um, represents the median salaries of men that um, studied those subjects, and the lighter blue triangle shows um, the median salary of of females that um, studied the same subjects. So from that you can quite see um, for um, for pretty much all the subjects studied, the median earnings on um, for for women um, is to the left of those 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 on, on the men. So you can see how, how that could be quite a useful sort of tool. Uh, another example, this slide shows and um, provides a link to our most recent um, May 2021 research report. So whilst the examples I've, I've um, selected for this slide are sort of quite sort of basic and sort of hopefully quite easy to understand, they do not do this um, research report justification because that report actually spans to, I think it's almost 90 pages with a sort of wide range of sort of um, breakdowns and sort of some really interesting sort of analysis. But again, just to illustrate a little bit of the art of the possible, the, the graph on the left um, compares median earnings for people split between their eligibility for free school meals. So again, this is sort of showing um, the rather actually sort of surprisingly the median earnings for um, non-FSM pupils is um, almost um, £5,000 higher than most for FSM, FSM pupils. Um, similarly, the table on the right um, provides a uh, provides a sort of um, breakdown of um, labour market outcomes um, again 15, um, 15 years after graduation and it shows how that can vary by sort of um, vary, vary, by, vary by region again these things probably aren't things that people will be surprised to see from their their experience of society but I just sort of having sort of data that demonstrates these and hopefully are easy to understand sort of does sort of show um, I, I suppose the art of the possible with something like like Leo. So as I sort of mentioned, Leo is a massively powerful sort of data asset and um, the previous slides and the publications referenced are only a very small part of what's possible in terms of comparing outcomes um, for people over time with different educational experiences or pathways. So I don't have time to go through all of these key analytical questions, but just to very quickly pick a couple. Um, the first question talks about understanding the links between location, mobility and outcomes to better understand whether those at similar education levels who are more mobile um, experience um, better um, outcomes than perhaps those who are less mobile. And again, sort of, I use the terminology better outcomes very loosely in that context and similarly question 10 which is probably actually quite important in the current environment considers whether the the skills the skills that people are are, um, are required for um, key sectors um whether we have sort of enough people sort of um studying uh, those types of areas so um very briefly, in terms of how you can access Leo, Leo is one of the first projects in government to provide Digital Economy Act enabled access to a multi-department linked data set for use by researchers across government and beyond. Um, applications to access Leo um, were opened in July this year and can be made via the Office for National Statistics Research Accreditation Service. And there's a few links in, in this slide um, for further information if people want to do that. And then just um, very, very um, finally, but I think sort of probably Ruth's earlier presentation sort of illustrates sort of some of these points, but I just wanted to highlight Leo is only one example of the work being done by DfE with regards to widening access to to, um, to cross-government data so for, for research in the public interest. So this slide includes a few other examples, including the ETL project, which Ruth has covered, which I'll be more than happy to um, cover in a bit more detail if anyone wants to ask any 
follow-up questions on those. So I think thanks all for your time and I will hand back over to, to Gavin for questions. Thank you very much indeed, Gary. And just a reminder to everybody watching, um, you had some brilliant questions for Ruth. We've already got some great ones coming through for Gary, but you can use Slido, on which you're hopefully watching us, uh, to put questions to Gary. Um, so I think, Gary, if you're able to turn Oops, your camera yeah. back on, we'll be able to see you properly. It should be coming. There we are. Excellent. Um, so the first question is from Sam at MedConfidential. Good evening to you, Sam. Um, he says an ICO audit found DFE's handling of the National Pupil Database was unlawful. What did DFE get wrong and what's been done about it? And how would DFE tell parents if recipients got identifiable data on their children? OK, I think it's, it's useful to, to clarify the report didn't didn't say that DFE's handling of the National People Database was unlawful. There were certainly lots of things that DFE can do better and the department are acknowledging that and we are working very closely with the ICO sort of to address the concerns that have been raised sort of in 2020. And um, the Department for Education will reporting into Parliament the actions we're sort of taking on, on these things. So I don't I, it's it's probably sort of not for um, not for me to sort of to go through the list of actions and sort of um the um I suppose the the rest of recommendations that the ICO sort of have um required the department to do, but certainly sort of DFE acknowledge some of the issues that have been raised and we are working closely with the ICO to address those those things. But it should be sort of noted as as I've sort of mentioned, the the amount of um sharing that DFE do safely and very well as well as also being acknowledged by sort of ICO. So yes, definitely things we can do do better, but it's not a wholesale fail of, of, of the department's um processes in that area. Thanks. Um, we've got a question from Emma Gordon as well from ADR UK, a former Databytes presenter herself. Good evening, Emma. Um, great presentation, Gary. Can you give an example of how research using Leo has been used to inform government policy, whether that's at UK level or devolved level? Cool. Well, um, there's some, but I think actually, Emma, as well, it's, it's also a, a real good point. I'll, I'll, I'll do the probably the wrong thing and not quite answer the question you've asked first, but sort of provide the thing, because I think actually um, the idea and sort of what we've done in July by widening access to, to Leo, because I think as a department, we recognise DFE aren't the sole arbiters of what's good research. So actually, I think um, widening that access and some of those sort of key analytical questions that we'd like to see answered they're not they don't have to be answered by dfe but i think that can even sort of help leo be sort of even even sort of more sort of value but i think there's even things like um looking into sort of qualifications and who's um studying the correct things for maths and sort of science teachers and sort of informing sort of thinking sort of and 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 those areas there's sort of stuff like that the key thing is, are, are a good power of leo as well but obviously it takes time because the longitudinal nature of it and so for example sort of leo will be really interesting and sort of really valuable when we consider the impact on uh, of covid sort of on those outcomes but obviously sort of in terms of um natural human experiments those will take sort of five ten years until until people in school sort of now are sort of hitting hitting sort of the labor market so it's yes it's 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 informed sort of certain areas sort of today but i think it can it will be far more powerful as sort of time sort of goes on and as we can sort of more sort of trigger sort of more use and sort of better sort of analysis of it we will sort of acknowledge probably sort of at the moment it's it's powerful but it's probably been underutilized which is part of the thing why widening widening and access is so important. 
Thanks, Gary. Um, on the subject of access, actually, we've got another question from Sam, um, which is how many of your users now go through SRS? Um, that's an, uh, some initials that you might, might have heard a few times this evening. For those of you who don't know, it's the Secure Research Service at the ONS. So how many of your users now go through that and how many still get disseminated data? Cool. Well, and again, it's, it's one of these things, there's different ways to sort of to, to split these things up. But in terms of um, over, overall numbers, I don't have the exact numbers to head, but it's 60% um, plus go through the SRS, but a large proportion of the ones that don't will be sort of um, cross-government sort of data, data shares where we'll be providing data sort of directly to other government departments that they may have to link to their own sources to to, um, to, to fulfil sort of those purposes and other sort of things things like um, uh, to, to set up sort of sampling frames to, and sort of them to, uh, to do sort of um, sort of uh, research sort of groups. So the numbers are increasing sort of over over sort of time, but sort of at the moment it's it's sixty percent approximately sort of two two third are going through the the, the SRS route, but sort of as SRS def default, and there has to be justified reasons why they why they can't go through that go, go through that route. And in most cases, it's because the nature of the data is the type of data that can't um, can't really be handled within within the SRS environment. Great, thank you. We've got just over three minutes left, so time for some more questions. If you want to submit them, we've got one from Simon Dennis again at Sassy K. Um, fantastic presentation, Gary. How do well-intentioned technology providers engage to offer expertise or technical support without tainting the goodwill upon which these projects depend? It's put in brackets, no commercial use, just wanting to support progress and help as part of putting back into the community. <sighs> It's a sort of, it's definitely sort of an interesting question. I think certainly sort of something we would um, be sort of happy to explore and perhaps sort of understand sort of a bit more of detail. Certainly, for example, in the Leo environment, what we did and what we launched in July was certainly iteration one sort of of, of sort of um, making making the Leo data available. So that's a standalone sort of um, data set sort of on its own. As I say, there's there's certainly there'll be tight controls, but we're certainly sort of more than sort of happy to discuss and sort of see sort of if, if there is things that, that can sort of happen to to support that. But as we say, because it, it will be handled under, under by the ONS under the Digital Economy Act, there will be sort of tight sort of barriers and sort of expectations um, before anyone will be given any 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 access to it. They will sort of have to be met. And I one of these, yep, um, we'll say quite a lot, and you'll probably hear in the rest of the night, in the public interest, benefit public, benefit society, those things will always have to be have to be demonstrated. Thanks. Um, on your final slide, you were talking about some of the other projects um, that DFE is doing with data and obviously quite a lot of other government departments um, involved in that. So a, a similar question to the one I put to Ruth earlier, which is how do you sort of approach building those relationships across government, sort of legally, culturally, organisationally? Yeah, and, and certainly I think anyone involved in data sharing across government and, and quite likely will tell you the, the legal and information government aspects are probably the most time consuming and, and, the, and the bits that are so hard to sort of to get right. But I think what what's key is involving the right people at the right time sort of in these sort of discussions so i think it's getting the people to understand these things up front possibly before the analysts and the users are sort of getting their hands on it sort of um, too much to, to, to sort of to make sure we don't go too far down one route that just sort of really wouldn't be sort of awful so i think it it's also important i think there has to be a willingness on on sort of both sort of parties as well i mean what certainly um and this is probably a personal reflection, although I'm sure many would share it. But I think um, 
what we have sort of at the moment is quite a lot of bespoke sort of linkages, linkages which are sort of useful and be able to provide that um, demarcation between data sets. But I think there's, there's certainly a lot that we can learn from how we sort of work on one project to sort of how we can do sort of things with another. So, for example, certainly within DFE, what we have done and come up with in Leo and sort of the way that, that we are managing that for the, the ONS research accreditation service and the Digital Economy Act is stuff that perhaps we'll be looking to do with a bit more of our sort of um, DFE data as well. So I think it's just um, willing, willingness to participate and I think sort of um, willingness to learn from others and sort of um, not necessarily reinvent the wheel sort of at all times, but just sort of making sure we think everything through. Fantastic. That actually brings us um, almost perfectly to the end um, of the eight minutes. I was going to squeeze in a final, if you can answer it in 10 seconds question, which is, and you may have preempted this already, if you could change one thing about government data, what would it be? I, I, think, I think, yes, it, it's probably just sort of not making it easier to, to, to share, but I think sort of making the roadmap to a successful share, making that sort of a, a, bit, a bit sort of easier and, and maybe sort of less less resource intensive. But that's not to diminish the things that we do do. It's part of that. They are sort of vitally important. Fantastic. Well, Gary, thank you very much indeed for uh, presenting. Thank you. Uh, and thank you everyone for all of your questions. Remember, you can put them to our speakers via Slido as we go along. And uh, we're now going to turn to our third speaker of uh, the evening. Over to you, Morag. Hello, and thank you. That's me sharing my slides, I believe. And thanks for having me here this evening. I'm Morag Trainer, and I am Professor of Child and Family Inequalities at Harriet Watt University and part of the Scottish Centre for Administrative Data Research. I lead on the work programme called Understanding Children's Lives and Outcomes. So our research projects, I'm going to discuss two tonight, directly respond to the programmes that sit under Scotland's national performance framework and they aim to improve the lives and outcomes of all children in Scotland. Now, Scotland's national performance framework has a focus on tackling inequalities and is Scotland's way of localising the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. The national performance framework has a core strand on children and young people, which strives for an environment where children can grow up loved, safe and protected and can reach their full potential, as can be seen in the flower petal at five o'clock on the diagram, the one with the teddy bear. So under our Understanding Children's Lives and Outcomes research strand, we have two research projects currently in train. The first project explores the context, factors and approaches to educational exclusions and absences. It investigates the impacts of absences and exclusions on children and young people's exam qualifications and post-school destinations. It explores the role of family characteristics and circumstances, including, for example, material poverty and factors associated with poverty, such as unemployment and disability, on their exclusions and absences. And it examines the variation between schools and local authorities themselves in their practice in relation to exclusions and absences. For example, we will be able to match individual schools on key characteristics and look at the differences or similarities in their rates of absences and exclusions, and also for particular groups of children, e.g. those with a disability or from a different ethnic background. 
So school identities will be unknown to the research team. It's not the aim of the research to name and shame schools or to create league tables. Rather, we would be able to comment on patterns of similarity and difference, which could lead to a qualitative exercise to understand those differences in greater depth. And this will allow us to explore the extent to which it is the school level practice rather than the demographics of the catchment area or the characteristics of the family per se that make the difference to absences, exclusions and subsequent educational outcomes. So this project will not only be useful for policy and practice in Scotland, but also across the UK more broadly. There's been marked divergence in the practice and policy of school exclusions between Scotland and England, for example. Whereas permanent exclusions in Scotland have almost been eliminated, they were down to five single cases in 2015-16. In England, they were increasing over the same period. However, exclusions have not been completely eliminated in Scotland. Temporary exclusions, which are known as fixed period exclusions in England, continue to occur. In Scotland, around 2.7% of the school population in 2016-17 were excluded on a temporary basis, which was a 20% reduction from the 2012-13 rate. Whereas in England in 2016-17, 4.8% of the school population were excluded on a temporary basis, which was an increase of 36% on the 2013 figures. So we can see there is growing divergence between Scotland and England in policy and practice there. So by exploring the impacts of absences and exclusions in different contexts across Scotland and across time, we would be able to inform policy and practice elsewhere too. The specific research questions to be answered in this project are what impacts do absences and exclusions have on children and young people's educational outcomes measured by their exam qualifications and their post-school destinations? How do exclusions and absences vary by schools and local authorities? What impact do the school and local authority level variations have on exam qualifications and post-school de destinations? And how do these impacts and effects vary for particular groups of children, e.g. those living in poverty and those with additional support needs or special educational needs and disabilities? And how do the family characteristics and circumstances interact mediate or moderate the prevalence and the impacts of young people's exclusions and absences. Moving on to our second project, the second project aims to increase the knowledge of the characteristics and circumstances and outcomes of children currently living in formal kinship care. It also aims to increase the knowledge of the requirements that welfare and universal and targeted services should meet in the context of their statutory duties to promote the well-being of children. So strengthening support to informal and formal kinship carers has been a core policy objective for some time in Scotland and also in other nations of the UK. And in Scotland, these imperatives have been reinforced by the publication of a recent report of the Independent Care Review held in Scotland and the First Minister's commitment to implementing its recommendations. So knowing what is currently happening for children living in formal kinship care, and I keep emphasising the formal for a reason, is fundamental to evaluating and fulfilling the legal and policy commitments to prevention, to early intervention, and to the promotion and facilitation of nurturing and stable care arrangements for children. And the research questions that this project aims to answer 
are what are the levels of formal kinship care, including overall proportions, regional patterns and length of time being looked after and has that changed over time? What are the routes into formal kinship care? How do children fare when they're living in kinship care? And what are the pathways back out of formal kinship care? And how do these differ over time? A cross-cutting analytical theme for both projects would be some methodological and data foundations where, because, as I'll, I'll come on to speak about the data in a moment, but the data we're using will also link parent and child data, and we'll see if we can um, explore or create some level of family and community context. So we're doing some exploratory methodological work too. Um, the data sets to be linked and used, this will be the first time these data sets have come together. The first projects will use data sets from education, health and the census. And the second project will use data sets from education, child protection, the children's hearing system, uh, looked after children returns and children's health indicators as returned by health visitors at set periods in Scotland up until the age of five. So final slide is while the linking of all these data sets covering almost every aspect of a child's life will allow a comprehensive and integrated exploration of children's lives and outcomes in relation to their family and community context too, it will also go further than this. It will allow us to answer policy and practice relevant questions on their own practice. We expect to be able to comment on how the systems themselves affect children's outcomes and so propose new ways of developing and implementing policy and practice. And this is demonstrated in the first project, which seeks to explore not only family context and community context in relation to absence and exclusion, but also the role of schools themselves. And in, by doing this, we expect that decision makers can then be better informed on how best to meet Scotland's ambitions for children, namely that they grow up loved, safe and protected and can reach their full potential as outlined in the National Performance Framework. And further, we'd like the findings from these research projects and this novel data linkage to have positive impacts on the children and families of Scotland and also across the UK more widely. Um, thank you very much for your attention and I shall stop sharing now. Well, thank you very much indeed for the presentation, Morag. Um, and to everybody watching, you can put your questions to Morag. We've already got some coming in. Do use Slido, uh, lots to dig into there. Um, in fact, I'm going to start with a question from Rich Thompson. Uh, he says, given that this feels very much like a multi-agency situation, how have you approached brokering some of the data exchanges and shares required? Eek, that's what I would say. <laughs> um, the fact that I am presenting what I will do rather than what I have done is probably a good way of starting to answer your question, that this has been two years in the making. The communications, because each of those data sets has a different data owner and having each data owner have buy-in to what the project is about. However, it does come under the auspices of ADR Scotland itself and the Scottish Government are a partner in that. So we, we have the um, statistics body at the Scottish Government also as a partner in this. So there have been, um, there has been buy-in from all the agencies, but it's taken time. It's not been a very quick process. There are some things we haven't yet managed to do in the kinship care or the looked after children project, for example, we're still unable to 
um, look at the outcomes for children under five because we would need to broker the you know, the permissions with all 32 local authorities in Scotland, whereas the data sets I'm using, the brokerage is all at the national level. So we have had to pare back where we haven't been able to do that, but it has been um, time consuming and required a lot of input uh, meetings and everyone being on board. So not easy at all. Thank you very much. I think this question follows on quite nicely from that one, actually, which is another one from Simon Dennis. And um, often the maxim is as much data as possible, but this is in part due to historic scarcity or poor quality or because data adequacy is often discovered post acquisition. Sometimes complexity is introduced with huge data sets. Is Scotland well placed with four to five million population versus, say, the UK at closer to 70? Um, I'm not sure what, whether the comparison makes much difference. As for data quality, that we have, a, I think there's a couple of things that make it easier for Scotland. The fact that we have a unique identifier in our health data sets, what we call the CHI number or Community Health Index, means it's easier for us to link health data. And I think our linkages, I don't know whether they're of a higher quality because Ruth's presentation showed that the e-child linkage is extremely high quality at 99%. So, um, and the Scottish data sets, our linkage would be in the, the 90s too. So, um, I, I think as these processes and algorithms improve, I don't think that the quality is necessarily an issue um, between the two countries. Excellent, thank you. And uh, Rich says, thanks. Uh, Thanks for your answer. Great effort, clearly. Um, we've got another question from Emma Gordon as well. Really enjoyed your presentation, Morag. Will you be able to assess how children's outcomes differ between kinship care and formal looked after care situations? Yes, yes, we shall. Um, that's one of the things we, we will be able to do. We'll be able to see how it differs across different experiences of being in care. What we can't do is look at the informal kinship care or, or work out what proportion of children are being looked after by family who may have very different outcomes. I believe there's an identifier for informal kinship care in the census, but we'll be using census data from 2011. And because the majority of children who are taken into care are young, it you know, we won't be able to pick that up very sensitively. In the coming years with the next census, um, I'm hopeful that we can even pick up on informal kinship care, which for me would be um, a more, um, uh, not more important, but an equally important comparator. But yes, we will be able to compare with our other, other forms of care. Yeah. Excellent, thanks. We've got about four minutes left, a nibble uh, as part of the bite, if you will, so please do keep your questions coming. Um, one from me, you sort of mentioned, and this, this is a very Institute for Government geeking out on performance management frameworks question. Um, you mentioned a couple of sort of frameworks at an international as well as a national level. Um, how, to what extent have, has, have those helped shape your work and how does that, how does that affect the sort of political interface of your work, if you like? Yeah, excellent question, Gavin. It has shaped these projects because these projects are devised um, in collaboration with people in government to answer policy relevant questions to the Scottish Government and beyond. We've had communication with the um, Department for Education too, for example. So um, the frameworks have been really useful because there are several things in Scotland. There's a report from the Independent Care Review, which we are called The Promise in Scotland, if anyone wants to Google that, and that has very strong recommendations on about care experienced children. 
And then we have the attainment challenge for education. We have the strong policy drive to reduce exclusions and not to exclude children. We have um, the PACE, which is about performance for care experienced children. So these are all sitting underneath the, the performance framework in Scotland. And our projects very much are working with the policy um, people in government who guide those um, frameworks and who work with those frameworks. So it's been very collaborative with government in that sense. Excellent, thank you. Um, another question from Mary Alice Doyle. A methodological question. You talked about looking at the role of schools and community. What methods do you use to identify those local school level impacts? Well, we haven't started the analysis yet because we don't have the data yet. The data we hope we'll have in a couple of months time. But I'm thinking, and um, if you have expertise in this area, you can please inform us. We're thinking that something like um, propensity score matching of indices of schools and characteristics of schools to try and match the similar and different types of schools based on rurality, size, role, free school meal entitlement, deprivation, proportion, um, different religion, ethnicity, etc., and to do propensity score matching to look at the, the rates and levels of absence and exclusion. That's, um, yeah. I'm happy to take advice if people think other methods would also be worth trying. People should definitely get in touch if they have ideas. Um, what do you think success looks like for these projects, ultimately? There's a few things I'm particularly interested in that I'm not sure I will be able to adequately answer. One of the things, it also relates back to what Ruth was saying about e-child when she was talking about the importance of child's absence on their schooling and the importance of looking at children's health and the impact on their absences in their schooling. What I'm interested in looking at is the impact of early childhood absences from school at the primary level and whether that's related to later exclusions or absences. But I'm interested in looking at the parental characteristics impact on child absences. So we, we're hoping to have a mental health, a, a parental mental health indicator in the data. And I'd be interested to see when, whether parental health is impacting on children's absences at the primary school level. So, and I'd, there's not work being done on that before because we haven't had this massive linkage and, and maybe it's a bit ambitious, but these are the types of questions I'd like to answer. So success would look like, um, at the moment, a lot of the research on exclusions is focused on the individual pupils, their characteristics, their families, their ethnicity, where they live, how poor they are, how many children are in the family, etc, etc. And there's very little thought given, do, do children have an equal um, experience within the school setting? Are all schools the same? Are they, are they even? Are they equal in, in how they treat all children? And the answer is bound to be no. So if we could find, um, not that I want to find something dreadful, but if we could find variations and just inform the practice to highlight that there may be variations in the system, rather than expecting to always fix the pupil or the family, then I think that would be success. Should policy and practice then affect change, that would be absolutely fantastic. But um, perhaps just drawing attention to it in the first instance would be success for me. Perfect. In fact, perfect note on which to end uh, from our third speaker. Thank you very much indeed, Morag. Thank you. Uh, that brings us to our final presentation of the evening. Rob, over to you.
and you're currently on mute. Excellent. Great. Uh, can you hear me now? Can indeed. Loud and clear. Great. Over okay, to great. Okay, so um, uh, I'm a researcher at uh, Cardiff University and um, in the School of Medicine. This work we're talking about today is about how children with diabetes get on at schools and university. Uh, this work started back in 2014 when I was a, a researcher at Bristol. Um, we um, we were speaking to the diabetes audits and patient groups about what kind of things were going on in schools for, for people with diabetes. Um, and then in 2016, it was funded by the Medical Research Council to do some work in Wales. Um, and then earlier this year, we got additional funding from um, uh, from Administrative Data Research UK to extend this to England. OK, so. So thinking about the research questions in this space, um, Primarily or typically, we think of the effect of diabetes on educational outcomes. So questions like how does a diagnosis of diabetes affect your school attendance, um, progression to university, degree class, um, even your likelihood of employment after university. Um, and we're not limited on the health side, just comparing children with diabetes versus those without. There are um, measures of uh, uh, diabetes uh, related health, so typically blood glucose management or comparing across different diabetes treatment regimes. OK, but equally, we might think education also has an effect on health. So in the reverse direction, um, so perhaps questions like do children with diabetes who attend smaller schools have more optimal rates of blood glucose management than those that attend larger schools or another key health outcome is time to diabetes related complications. And this is important because the cost of diabetes isn't really from the day to day management, but the onset of retinopathy, kidney problems and so on that are costly for the NHS to manage and also impacts a person's ability to work. Um, some other considerations then in terms of these research question spaces, the clusters in which individuals are living. So um, you know, the neighbourhoods, their possibly families or, or schools, clinics and so on. Uh, is this relationship between diabetes and education different you know, in different schools or in, in different neighbourhoods or regions? Um, covariates, we're thinking about you know, how, how does this differ by gender, ethnicity and so on, but also common factors, you know, things that might be affecting both your ability to manage your diabetes health and also it might affect your educational attainment. So it might be those things that are driving the association rather than um, uh, a, a real link. And then finally, the mechanisms and, and, and what I'm trying to flag here is that this historical acceptance that there's some biological mechanism which affects your cognitive ability. But then when we're thinking about educational outcomes, uh, it might be a slightly broader, more social mechanisms that are uh, important. Um, and I should also add on this slide as well, while we focus on diabetes, so there are lots of health conditions, paediatric health conditions that you might claim to have an importance for education. Um, and I'm just going to focus on one of those, which is the, the better data. Um, so uh, diabetes has uh, a, a national audit or you know, the national audits across the different nations and, and there's uh, measures like diabetes status, markers of diabetes related health, treatment programs, care process, lots of information specific to diabetes. And the UK also has the largest national diabetes audits in the world with over 30,000 children um, and 3 million adults. So it gives us scope to consider um, social outcomes even beyond education as well. So there's lots of reasons to start with diabetes um, and there are also mechanisms through which your learning for diabetes might be shared more widely. So, um, for example, at the Royal College of Paediatric and Child Health, diabetes is one of the key conditions there. And um, the in terms of the Healthcare and Schools Alliance, Diabetes UK are one of the charities that, that lead that. So um, it, it's well placed to kind of be an exemplar, perhaps. 
Okay, um, so just think about what data we link. We've got on this slide age across the top, uh, mapped to infographics for life events like you know, starting school, maybe changing treatment or going to university. And then the data sets for education should be familiar schools, you know, 16 plus uh, university um, uh, and also graduate destinations. And then alongside that, we've got the diabetes data. So from the point of diagnosis up to age 16, uh, each year you'll be contributing information to the National Paediatric Diabetes Audit. And then as you transition to adult care, you'll move into the National Diabetes Audit. And so these presents present a longitudinal picture of your sort of diabetes related health and uh, other measures over time. Okay. Um, so, as I sort of hinted at the start, this, this work uh, started a few years ago for Wales, and, and that work is now complete. And I, I'm going to show you some results from that in a second, but um, there were some specific challenges, I think, for doing this. And the key one is primarily doing things for the first time. And what we were doing for a lot of these linkages is we were asking you know, the um, HQIP for the MPDA and NHS Diddle for NDA and, and HESA for the higher education data to share their identifiers, that their person identifies externally um, so that we could use a third party to do the linkage. And so the legal basis around this was um, a big challenge because it was the first time uh, they'd done this. OK, so like I said, we, we've completed this for Wales and um, I'm just going to show you uh, one, uh, one sort of slide of results. And these are both to show the value of the data, but also to get some sense of um, you know, why perhaps we might need to continue on and extend this for England. Um, OK, right. So what have we got on the vertical axis? We've got attainment at age 16. Um, it's standardised, but essentially all you need to know is the higher attainment is better. And then across the middle, we've got this dashed red line, which shows the um, mean attainment for children without diabetes, which is our comparator. And for Wales, for these cohorts, the mean attainment was equivalent to four grades GCS, four, G, four grade C GCSEs and four grade D. And so we see for children with diabetes, uh, uh, they actually have the same predicted attainment, you know, conditional on uh, lots of factors, but the same predicted attainment as their peers without diabetes. And this is quite an important result because um, uh, it, it tells uh, it tells us that actually you know, children and parents shouldn't necessarily be so worried about uh, about a diagnosis of diabetes. It doesn't mean that the child can't fulfil their educational potential. And um, it certainly goes against what a lot of healthcare professionals were expecting. You know, these children have many distractions every day while they're managing their diabetes, you know, and they have hospital appointments and miss, you know, nine excess sessions of school every year, um, you know, over and above the routine illnesses that, um, you know, any child might have. Um, right, in our second model on the right in this red box here, we take that diabetes group and we split it into H um, quintiles of blood glucose with the least optimal, uh, sorry, the most optimal on the left and the least optimal on the right. And we see those with the best um, uh, diabetes uh, blood glucose levels, oh, sorry, diabetes management have uh, four grades higher on average than the, their peers, whereas those with the um, least optimal uh, blood glucose management have attainment five grades lower than their peers without diabetes. Um, and this finding combined with some other um, data sort of analysis in the paper, including focusing on the timing of the diagnosis, leads us to believe that it's not necessarily like a biological mechanism whereby there's some cognitive change arising from higher blood sugars. And in fact, those changes are often much smaller and, and, and over a much longer term, but rather some biological, some sorry, some sociological effect, which is affecting both your ability to learn and um, and your diabetes management. So a headline of something like if you're good at managing your education, you'll also be good at managing your diabetes. And um, I should add that we see similar findings across other outcomes, including uh, progression to university, university attainment and, um, and actually graduate destinations as well. 
okay, so if we've got these great results for Wales, why do we need to then um, extend this to England? So I'll just conclude by saying, justifying us going ahead for that. So firstly, the current approvals only go up to 2017 and treatment options for diabetes, particularly pump and continuous glucose monitoring are changing things all the time. Um, so we want to know just not what effect these are having, but you know, who is accessing them? Is it is it differed by education? Um, secondly, we need greater power to explore characteristics which alter the relationship between diabetes and education. And primarily we're thinking about um, including measures of prior attainment at each educational stage to get more trajectories of education, which wasn't possible in the smaller uh, Welsh sample. And then finally, uh, we wanted to open up this data to other researchers. So to allow other researchers to access this data, we need to upgrade our legal basis uh, to a research database approval. Um, the research database also conveniently provides a template for the easier addition of other health data sets. So we're not just allowing other researchers to use it. We can extend this and, and um, add other things in. So there were four things we were thinking of. So firstly, initially, we we're thinking about other diabetes data sets like retinopathy screening. Um, but then there's also potential to add other conditions like other audits, like the epilepsy 12 audit is one we're working with at the moment. Um, and then possibly you know, as we've developed this, we've started to think about, well, what are these mechanisms underlying uh, th this link between the diabetes and education? So we think about census data to perhaps understand the family structures and the dynamics there, and also perhaps um, some survey data to get richer measures uh, of the child and household characteristics to help evaluate the role these factors play and how government policy might improve both health and educational outcomes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you very much indeed, Rob. Um, again, lots to dig into there, so please do keep your questions flooding in via Slido. Um, if I could start with one, um, sort of returns to, to a thing that's come up a few times. Obviously, we're talking about health data, we're talking about data about children, both very sensitive. Um, how do you sort of approach that and what sort of engagement, transparency and so on um, do, do you sort of work on to, to help build trustworthiness? Well, this has been a kind of revelation for me in the last 12 months has been working with uh, Diabetes UK to do our public engagement. So previously we would spoken to panels and you often get you know, quite a lot of support and people say, oh, that's great. Yeah, go ahead and do it. But you don't necessarily get the engagement and understanding of the complexities of the data, particularly using data without consent and, and the kind of things we're doing there. So Diabetes UK helped us convene a panel of young people um, and we, an MRC regulatory support centre came in and helped with the training of these people so they could understand what we talk about when we say anonymisation or, you know, you know confidential data and, uh, and the linkage and so we've kind of trained up this group to, to, to really give some strong feedback and we, we have given us a lot of feedback and a lot of things they're not happy with and um, uh, particularly upstream of the data with it, uh, you know, how data providers are providing information about what's being used with it, what's been done with their data how it's being shared for research and you have lots of questions as well about you know well is it going to be shared with um, private companies profit making companies and so I'd say for me, it's been working with the charity has really opened up my eyes to um, to much deeper and more meaningful um, public engagement. Excellent, thanks. Um, got a question from Simon Dennis. Uh, great presentation. As a Bristol alumnus, I may be biased, of course, but on the topic of bias, how do you address the enormous impact on the national data set of so much spurious data driven by fraudulent incident diversion overseas and the selective immigration from Asia to access NHS drugs? Um, I'm not quite sure uh, how to answer that one. Um, could you repeat the question again, please? Yeah, how do you address the impact on the national data set of spurious data driven by fraudulent incident diversion overseas and selective immigration to access NHS drugs? Oh, I see. Sorry, I misheard. Okay. Um, right. Well, I'm afraid we don't tackle that at all. And um, 
I'd be interested to hear more about it actually. So uh, yeah. Cool, thank you. Um, we've got uh, another question from Emma Gordon. There are important messages from your research for children with diabetes. How do you reach out to those groups to make sure they're aware? Yep, so, well, we, uh, it, we're very lucky, like as I mentioned before with diabetes, that we've got these great networks. So I was able to present uh, a few months ago at the uh, Royal College of Paediatric and Child Health uh, sort of uh, annual review and there that's the the clinics from all around the UK all the diabetes clinics so that's diabetes nurses and the specialists there uh, are able to hear that message and I, I think they were very impressed by the well not impressed but very pleased by this idea that on average there's, there's no difference so there's still work to do underneath the bonnet but on average when a child's do diagnosed with di diabetes it's very good that for them to be able to say well you know this doesn't mean they can't reach their potential so I, I think that's a key message in terms of um uh, deeper things that we can do. I mean, it, this again comes back to actually the, the patient engagement. So one of the things, uh, Ruth has also mentioned this, one of the things that the patients really want to see is this real world impact. In some respects, they trust us to do um, uh, to do the the, um, uh, the linkage correctly and, and do everything securely. Perhaps they trust us too much, but they, but they were really, really focused on, we want to see a real world impact and not just some, you know, in theory, this should help, but actually, well, what are the mechanisms? If you find this difference uh, for children with diabetes, how are you going to go back and, um, you know, speak to the special educational needs team and get some change in funding? Or how are you going to, um, you know, speak to diabetes nurses and make sure that they know that uh, they should be doing this extra thing or, or perhaps um, schools should be doing. So I, I think it's really challenged us to f explore those networks works and almost preempt the research so not waiting until the research is finished but get in touch with those groups now and say well you know if we do find this what what can what can we change um, so that's a, a work in progress at the moment excellent thank you uh, we've got another question from sam from ed confidential nhs digital is wanting to move to an srs style high quality trusted research environment for access to health data from england what effect would that have on your research and linkage to other secure research service data sets Yep. So, um, I mean, even within the one year period where we've been doing the English linkage, we've had to evolve um, in lots of ways. So, for example, the, the way we'd planned to, to do the HESA and MPD linkage, which we have taken the model from what we've done for Wales, we've had to evolve that and, and do do a slightly different um, uh, approach than we were hoping. So I think it's, it's constantly evolving this area. And I think we just have to be alert and, and, and ready to move. I mean, I, I went it was several years ago now, we went up to um, NHS Digital about their sort of digital access platform and we explored whether we, we could work in there. And you, you put a lot of effort into thinking through options there and then suddenly it hasn't really materialised in a way that might be useful to me. So I think, um, or at least at the moment. So I, I think you kind of just keep aware of these things, but you're ready to, ready to move. But at the moment, we are just putting the data straight into the SRS Excellent. for England. Thanks. Excellent, thank you. Just to say, um, Simon, who asked the question about um, sort of insulin and immigration, said he'll be in touch post-event. Right. Sorry, sorry, that was a cruel question. He says, very interesting one. <laughs> no, so. no, definitely, that's that's, um, that's great. Yeah. Um, you mentioned something um, that's come up in, in some research that we did last year, looking at um, data around children's services, actually, which was there's often a lot of really good quantitative data around, but without being able to get at that sort of qualitative experience and survey data, um, you are missing part of the picture. You, you mentioned that um, in, your, in your presentation. I wonder if you'd be able to say a little bit more about how you're planning to bring those different types of data together. Well, I mean, yeah. Even within data linkage, you have to be so specialised and so focused on doing one particular thing. Are you going to be evaluating the linkage, or you're doing some of the models, and are you going to focus on higher education? Or so it's very difficult to to cover 
all of these things in, in a quantitative linkage thing, never mind thinking about qualitative or whatever, um, or you know, all these other approaches. I mean, we, we do uh, speak to qualitative researchers, we read read the papers, and, uh, and we do get a lot of this back through um, Diabetes UK. And so that feeds into what the policy work we've been trying to do from this and, and also the public engagement that, that, that they're sort of bringing a lot of that real world experience. So maybe not high, you know, maybe not academic quality, qualitative research, but certainly um, you uh, uh, more more people's opinions and thoughts and uh, um, and those those are inputting into the work. Excellent, thanks. We've got about a minute and a half left, so this may be the final question. Um, yeah. Something that's come up quite a lot through the evening and in fact through through your presentation as well is that sort of idea of you're learning lots of things as you're going along, which obviously you can use in, in future projects, but also other people might be able to, to learn from that expertise as well. So how how should we go about sort of sharing that sort of expertise that we learn from working with data so others can can benefit from the methods as much as anything else yes okay and this is something that i'm constantly people are constantly saying after meetings or different things where we're talking about we're going to do this we've thought through this protocol for doing this particular part of the linkage and they say, well, you should publish that because other people could benefit and i i think this is so important but as a researcher you're also limited by the fact you've only got so much time and you've got to you do your grant proposals you're doing your um uh, your research papers you're trying to do your public engagement you're called in on policy work and so there's so many different areas where you're trying to do things that often things like that slip and you, you know, particularly the protocol for the Welsh linkage, which I think would be really useful in terms of using NHS Digital in Wales and you know, that, that that didn't get published just purely because of time. And I think it's about um, you know, making that a priority and I'm making it sort of count as well, because I don't know whether as an academic that would count as much in my outputs in the same way as a, this paper, a paper in diabetes care would. Um, so I, I think it's just about maybe helping with those, either helping with time or helping with priorities. Excellent. Well, that brings us to the end of the eight minutes. Rob, thank you very much indeed. A perfect way to end the evening. Thank you very much. I say end the evening, not quite. I've got a few parish notices to run through first. Um, as I mentioned earlier on, we will be having some virtual drinks uh, very shortly. Um, the details will hopefully be coming up on screen if they're not there already. And it does mean that you can come uh, drop into virtual drinks and you'll still be able to watch Gareth Southgate or more importantly, Gareth Bale, uh, given the football on tonight. Um, a few other uh, bits and pieces from the Institute for Government you might be interested in. Uh, we've got lots of other IFG events coming up over the next few weeks. If you're into education, you may well be having tuned in tonight. Um, the director of the Institute is in conversation with Amanda Spielman, the Chief Inspector of Ofsted next Tuesday. So do check that out on the IFG website. If you're into data, we've of course got parliamentary monitor coming out tomorrow. Next data bites is on the 6th of October, but we'll also be running an event on data at Labour Party conference as part of the full programme of events at Labour and Conservative conferences. Lots of other events coming up. Do check out the IFG website. I think all that remains for me to say are three very big thank yous. First of all, to all of you for watching tonight and some fantastic questions. As ever, they really do make a huge difference. A big thank you as well to ADR UK for their continued support for Databytes. And finally, join me in a virtual round of applause for our four fantastic speakers this evening. A huge thank you to all of them. Hopefully see some of you at virtual drinks. And if not, hopefully see you in October, if not sooner. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>